0: Hi, this is Cale Clark. Welcome back to the Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. I don't know if you ever took part in this Advent tradition. It's the tradition of the Jesse tree. A lot of families use a Jesse tree in place of an Advent calendar. And what's this all about? It's about a Messianic prophecy in the book of Isaiah about the root of Jesse. The root of Jesse will spring up. One who will arise to rule over the nations, the Gentiles will hope in him. And this is something that St. Paul is going to quote in today's lesson from our study on his letter to the Romans. But just to talk about the Jesse tree Advent devotion, just for a moment, what happens is that there's a little tree. Sometimes it's a craft, sometimes it's an actual tree. And on every day of Advent, ornaments are put on the tree. And then there's a little devotional that you can read and talk about what each ornament means. And the ornaments can be about Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, which are fulfilled in Jesus. Maybe some of the human ancestors of our Lord, because Jesse is at the bottom. Jesse is the father of King David. He's at the root. And then Jesus is at the top branch. We don't know a whole lot about Jesse, but we do know a lot about his son, David, and his ultimate ancestor, His descendant Jesus Christ. And so let's get into this lesson on St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Let's pick up the text in Romans chapter 15, starting with verse 7. And Paul writes, Welcome one another, therefore, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. By the way, the circumcised refers to the Jews. Praise the Lord, all Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And further, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse shall come, he who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And this is a great way for St. Paul to end off his teaching in Romans before he kind of winds it all up with some concluding exhortations and some travel plans and some other fun stuff that we'll explore. But he starts off by saying essentially, hey, accept one another, welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed you. And by the way, he doesn't mean simply to tolerate everybody else in the church (laughs) or who might come into the church, but to actually welcome them to welcome them with the same open arms that Christ had towards us. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to leave them as they are. <laughs> we welcome them. Christ welcomes them. Christ loves them, but he doesn't want to leave them the way that he found them, just as he didn't want to do that with us either. He, he does welcome, but he wants us to be better. He wants us to conform into his own image. And that's really beautiful. But we have to welcome one another. The main point Paul's making is because Christ has welcomed each one of us. So, again, he's really fighting against these divisions in the Roman church between the weak and the strong and the Jews and the Gentiles within the church. It's just beautiful. And so why, why does he say that? Well, as he kind of explains here, and you could put it this way. He says in verse 8, I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised or the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. Those are the the forefathers of the Jewish faith and ours too, Father Abraham and everyone else. So that in verse 9, the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. So, what he's really saying is that, number one, this is a theme that Paul has had all throughout Romans, you know, the gospel is the good news of the gospel. As he says in chapter one, verse 16, it's first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. All will be included though. Ultimately everybody's included in God's plan. Sin too. Jews have sinned. Gentiles have sinned. He talked about the, the depressing panorama of sin in chapters one and two. We all stand in need of a savior and all be included in God's plan to say, but first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. And and this was always God's plan in the Old Testament. And Paul's going to give a couple of quotes here, four of those quotes, in fact, from the Old Testament, to once again back up this view. And this is Paul's motif throughout his entire ministry as well. He, He goes first of all to the Jews, he goes to the synagogue in every town, and then he goes to the Gentiles. So I think what he's trying to do here is to remind the majority gentile church in Rome that hey don't don't look down upon the Jewish believers even if some of them are kind of adhering to the old kosher food laws and stuff like that they don't necessarily need to but don't look down on them don't forget that god's promises are for them first and then for everybody else all right so what are these verses that he quotes here this is this is really interesting paul says Verse nine, so that the Gentiles well, first, confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy, as it is written. And then there's four verses that he quotes here, and they're really interesting because they're from the three major sections of the Hebrew Bible: the Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. So let, let's talk about them in turn. The first one he has is from Psalm 18, verse 49, which is what the Psalms were considered the writings portion of the Old Testament. The law, the Torah, the five books of Moses. And then there's the prophets and then there's the writings. So the Psalms are part of the writing. Psalm eighteen forty nine is quoted in Romans 15, verse 9, when Paul says, As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. So let's, let's talk about this a little bit. The fact that he quotes Psalm 1849, who, who who is he talking about when he says, I will sing hymns to your name. I will praise you among the Gentiles. Who is the I that is speaking? Well, we do know, of course, that uh, this is a, a Psalm of David, Psalm 18. And we know that Paul sees these Psalms of David, and he knows that they ultimately point forward to the son of David, Jesus Christ. And this is where the whole Jesse thing kind of uh, uh, gets in there as well. But David certainly foreshadows Christ. Christ is, is, is causing the Gentiles to come into the church. Christ has opened up the people of God to the Gentiles. But David foreshadows Jesus. Don't forget the kingdom of God. And this is Jesus' big message, the kingdom of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of God. Don't forget, in the Old Testament, the only thing that was called the kingdom of God was the kingdom of David. That's the only time it occurs in the Old Testament. So again, Jesus as son of David is very, very important here. And everybody listening to Paul uh, or reading this for the first time would know the context of Psalm 18. Psalm 18. God's ultimate plan to bring the Gentiles in under the Messiah, the son of David. And this is incredibly important because it, it, the, the gospel breaks down this huge dividing wall. And, and there really was an actual dividing wall. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul talks about the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles that has been broken down. Let me tell you a little bit about that actual wall. In the year 1871, Charles Claremont Gonneau uncovered a limestone block in Jerusalem. Now, its dimensions were 85 centimeters long, 57 centimeters high, 37 centimeters thick. And there was a warning inscribed on this limestone block. It's a warning to the Gentiles to stay away from from the sanctuary of the temple in Jerusalem. Just keep outside the perimeter. And here's what it says. Here's what the inscription said. Let no Gentile enter within the partition and barrier surrounding the temple. Whosoever is caught shall be responsible for his subsequent death. (laughs) In other words, if you get caught, you're going to get killed, and it's your fault. And I've seen this inscription, by the way when you go to the Holy Land, when you go to the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, you can see this warning to the Gentiles on pain of death. If you go past this point, your blood is on your own head. There was another inscription that was found in the year 1935 in the old city of Jerusalem. It's 50 centimeters high, 31 centimeters thick, 25 centimeters wide. And this is the from the wall around the old city of Jerusalem. And there's, there's so much limestone in, in, in Jerusalem, in the Holy Land. It was very plentiful. It was very malleable. You could really work with it. A lot of the, the ancient tombs are cut out of limestone. But when you see this limestone in, in the brilliant sunlight, it, it is blinding. It is blinding white. You definitely need a pair of shades, that's for sure. But this inscription, this particular inscription, was painted with red letters, which really stood out against the white limestone. And it says something very, very similar to that first inscription that I just told you about, that non-Jews, if they get too close, they can be killed. So this is the dividing wall. This is exactly the dividing wall that St. Paul says has been broken down by Jesus Christ. And, And this is so that God's intent can finally be be consummated, that the Jew and Gentile come together, all the peoples of the world come together in the church. That's why it's Catholic. It's universal. It's for all peoples. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. All right, the next one is in verse 10 of Romans 15, when Paul writes again, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This is the quote from The Law. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. That's that's really intriguing as well because he uses the Greek translation of the Old Testament for this one because it fits what he wants to say more than the Hebrew text does. So this is kind of the artistry from St. Paul. And context always determines meaning. Now he's used this before. He's used Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 21 back in chapter 10 because he's kind of using this again, the, the idea that Gentiles coming into the church Hopefully will make the Jews a little bit jealous. Hey, hey, yeah, come make it in on the Messiah. I want in on this too. You know, the Messiah's promise to us first. And so this is part of Paul's bigger argument. And he's not just cherry-picking verses here. We you can always do that with the Bible. You can take verses out of context and create a whole theology out of it. That's how most cults get started. But Paul does not do that. He doesn't take verses out of their context. He's not proof texting. He really knows the scriptures really well. Context determines meaning. All right, let's go to the next quotation. This is um, chapter 15, verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, sing praises to him, all you peoples. This again comes from the writings. It comes from another psalm, Psalm 117, verse 1, which is really short. It's only two two verses. Well, verse 1, nowhere else in his writings does Paul talk about this particular psalm. But it's interesting because he talks about love, mercy, faithfulness, truth. This is why all peoples, the Gentiles, should praise God. And then the last quotation is in verse 12, and it comes from Isaiah um, chapter 11, verse 10. And this is the, the famous Root of Jesse passage. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, the Gentiles will hope in Him. The root of Jesse, or the shoot of Jesse, and, and actually, it's interesting. Again, Paul chooses to use the Greek translation, the Septuagint of Isaiah, as opposed to the Hebrew text. Again, to make his point, it's not a huge amount of difference. But here, here's what here's what the original text of Isaiah would say. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. But the translation that Paul picks out says something a little bit different. The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The people won't just rally to him. He'll rule over them. The Gentiles will hope in him. Now, hope is a big deal, a big uh, summary of um, what Paul wants for us. He wants hope. uh, the, The together in the Messiah, Jew and Gentile. All right, so let's talk about this root of Jesse for just a little bit. Okay, so the root of Jesse. The first person in a family line is essentially the root of that family. Jesse, of course, according to Scripture, we know is the father of King David. We also know, when we look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3 is a genealogy of Jesus, and also Matthew, chapter 1. We see the genealogy of Jesus, and we know that Jesse is in there. Jesus is descended from Jesse and his son David. So, when Isaiah wrote this, I just want to talk about the context of of Isaiah writing this in the first place, in Isaiah chapter 11. At that time, when Isaiah was on the scene as a prophet... There was a big hope that the Messiah was going to arise and he would once again reestablish the throne of King David. And this is actually what, what God promised David originally. And if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is a really, really important passage to understand the entire system of covenants with the son of David and, and foreshadowing Christ. This is what the prophet Samuel said to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Now, obviously, this part here could have been fulfilled and was fulfilled in David's son Solomon, because David never actually built the temple. It was Solomon, his son, who built the temple, who built the house for the name, the name of God. But then Samuel goes on to say this, God speaking here through Samuel. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Okay, well, clearly the only forever kingdom is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But th- this is where... The idea of son of David was was kind of birthed as a messianic term. So, root of Jesse, as Isaiah talks about in Isaiah chapter 11, this has to do with this idea that the Messiah would come from the line of David and David's father, Jesse. So, it was thought that the kingdom was over, the tree was cut down, there was only a stump that was left. But God says, no, I'm not done with this thing. There's going to be a little shoot that will phew, spring up will spring up just as Paul writes out of that stump it's going to carry on the line of david it's going to be the messiah jesus christ really amazing this is what paul talks about here in romans chapter 15 and by the way jesus himself says this too in the book of revelation in revelation 22:16 jesus says i jesus have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches i am the root and offspring of david and the bright morning star revelation 22:16 so clearly this has to do with the, the, the human ancestry of jesus and, and this is really important that to to understand this, this prophecy here of the messiah but at the end of the day as paul says at the, at the end of this little section here in verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Overflow with hope. So joy and peace. He wants Jews and Gentiles to have joy and peace with one another together. And they've got to share in their common hope and overflow. And we, we can really only minister to other people out of the overflow of what God's doing in our own life. Our apostolate has to come from the overflow of our interior life our evangelism as so san jose maria loved to say and so we have to do this together people have to be obviously reconciled to god individually but He he has saved us for community together in the church saint cyprian said one of the fathers of the church he said you can't claim to have god as your father if you don't have the church as your mother as one scholar said what paul's really saying here is that God's in the business of transforming individuals, but also forming a community. So we've got to have, again, those, those two, the vertical and the horizontal dimension right. The vertical beam, like the cross, a relationship with God has to be right. The horizontal beam, a relationship with one another, has to be right. The kingdom of God, really, which was the kingdom of David, Revivified in the Messiah, the root of Jesse. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationships. Having a right relationship with God first, but also having a right relationship with one another. And that overflow of joy, peace, and hope will be hopefully very attractive to other people to join the church as well. All right, we'll continue on with Romans in the next episode of the Faith Explained. But right now, don't go away. It's time to open up our Faith Explained QA mailbag. Okay, let's open up our mailbag today. I want to remind you, you can send me your question. I could use a few more. You can send them to me through this email address, faith, F-A-I-T-H, at relevantradio.com. Or you can find me on the X app and follow me there at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. And today's email comes to me from Lori, who has written in before, from Providence, Rhode Island. She's listening to Relevant Radio on the radio, the old-fashioned way, 5.50 a.m., W-S-J-W. And she writes, Hi Cale, here's my question. How do you know what is the one true religion? I believe that it is Christianity, but there are so many denominations that deem to be, quote unquote, the one. It makes no sense to me because I feel as though Satan may have been allowed to take Christianity and smash it into little pieces for people to then put their own twist and spin and rules and traditions on each of the denominations to keep us all confused. There is one Bible, so how can there be so many denominations stemmed off from it? Okay, great question, Lori. Really appreciate you writing in from Providence, Rhode Island. Yeah, yeah. I'll start off by saying this. First of all, how do you know what the one true religion is? Well, first of all, there's only one God. There's only one ultimate truth. Truth is always singular. Error is always multiple. Maybe I can use an analogy from the field of mathematics. What's the answer to 2 plus 2? We know it's 4. Spoiler alert. There's only one right answer to that question, but there, there's an infinite number of wrong answers that you could uh, submit as an answer to that question. And, and maybe that's an analogy when it comes to God. Truth is always singular. Well, let's, let's talk about this one God. How do we know that God is one? There are so many different ways to tackle this, but first of all, the Bible says this. The Bible is really clear. There's only one God. Let's look at the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4.35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Of course, we can look at the famous Shema prayer from Deuteronomy six verse four. hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Malachi 2.10 Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And then, of course, in his letter to the Ephesians, St. Paul talks about one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There's one Lord and one faith. The truth is singular. Now you might say, or a skeptic might say, well, okay, I get that the Bible says that, but I don't believe the Bible is the word of God. It's a circular argument. <laughs> well, it might be for some people, but not for us as Catholics, because we believe that God exists. He established the church and the church wrote, compiled, and canonized the texts of the Bible. So it's not a circular argument at all. It's a top-down argument. It's a linear argument, um, Other groups uh, would tend to use a circular argument for their scriptures, but not Catholicism. So we we could talk about other arguments outside the Bible for monotheism, for the fact that there's only one God. But here's just one philosophical argument that we could put forward. Think about this. God is a completely perfect being. There can't be another God. Because if there was another God, they'd have to be different in some way. And that would mean that they'd have to be different in terms of perfection. Uh, that This other God, if there was one, would have to be less than perfect or different than the perfect God. And that, that's not possible. God is also infinite. He can't have parts. Parts can't reach infinity. God is pure spirit, God the Father. So, he has to be infinite. There can't be two infinite beings. Because, well, again, one would have to differ from the other, so uh, we, we could talk about this till the cows come home. But in terms of the Catholic faith being the one true religion, I'd probably tackle it this way. There's 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 a lot of ways that we could we could deal with this, but off the top of my head, I, I would say this: We know that Jesus is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. God, the Son, He said this in John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. We know that even outside of the Bible, there are great proofs for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we can go over this uh, in a different episode later on. Lots of historical proofs for the resurrection. That's what brought me back to faith when I was uh, in university studying these proofs. And the question that comes to mind is, would, would God raise a false teacher from the dead? Would God the Father raise a heretic from the dead who was leading people astray? After all, Jesus was saying things like, I and the Father are one. No one comes to the Father through me. Is God really going to reward this person by raising him from the dead? That's just going to cause more people to believe in him. It's interesting to me. There, there's one of the very few um, Jewish scholars of the New Te- Testament, Pinhas Lepide. He, he actually believes, based on the historical evidence, that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he was resurrected. But he doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And I just, I just don't understand that because all of Jesus' t- teaching and self-understanding is all about that fact. But that's what I would say, first of all, that Jesus is who he claims to be. The resurrection is the ultimate seal of approval, if you will. And Jesus said this in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So that tells me two things just by pure logic right off the bat. Jesus says, I will build my church. So the church Jesus founded has to go back in time to Jesus himself. And it has to still exist today because he said, I will build my church and The gates of hell will not overcome it. It won't cease to exist. Well, the only church that really fits that bill is the Catholic Church. Now, you might say, well, what about the Orthodox Churches of the East? They claim to be the true apostolic churches. Well, I think there's really good historical evidence that they were Catholic until about 1000 AD when they broke off and became what we know now as the Orthodox Churches of the East. So they used to be Catholic. That's an argument for another day. But here's the thing. If the church Jesus founded had stopped existing or stopped failed to teach the truth, then that would mean that Jesus failed his promise, and that the gates of hell would have prevailed, that untruth would have been taught in his church. We know that Satan is the father of lies, and yeah, he is the cause of division, all these divisions among believers. But that's not the case. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, preserved the truth of the gospel and Jesus' teachings throughout the ages in The Catholic Church. So those are some, just off the top of my head, a couple of quick arguments for why the Catholic religion is in fact the one true faith. Say that very humbly, um, not triumphalistically at all, because we had nothing to do with it. This is just simply the way that God did it, and we're just bearing witness to it. So great question. I hope that helps to answer it a little bit, Lori. And anybody else listening can write in to me with another question. The email address is faith at relevantradio.com. You can find me on X at Kale Clark. Catch you later today on the Kale Clark Show live at 5 p.m. Central. If you missed an episode of The Faith Explained, check the podcast on the Relevant Radio app, and please do share them with a friend. Until next time, peace. God bless you.